This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by AGV Helmets and the new AGV K6. What you need and what you want in a motorcycle helmet. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast Christmas special. Myself, Steve English, David Emmett and Neil Morrison just to take you through our thoughts on the 2019 season. David, good to have you back on the pod. Uh, Yes, yes indeed. Good to have you back on the pod, uh, Steve. Yeah, it's quite strange not to have El Gordo sitting beside me for us, but uh, yeah. yourself and Neil aren't bad substitutes. Uh, not quite as good looking, but uh, we'll, uh, it'll have to do. Yeah, we did talk earlier on, actually, just before we came on air, about how Neil could have been in a boy band if things had <laughs> turned out a little bit differently. But Neil, how are you getting on? Not too bad. Thank you, Steve. Uh, good to be on the show uh, one last time in 2019. It's been a good year, I think, so uh, plenty to talk about in this kind of uh, review show. Yeah, it's been a pretty fun year so far, and uh, we'll just get straight into it, talking about the season as a whole. And uh, obviously enough for all of us, I've been working in World Superbikes, usually been in the MotoGP paddock, but uh, we all have our own thoughts about how the year has transpired. David, what's been your overriding thought of the season? Uh, I, I mean... The overriding thought of this season is just how good a season this has been for Mark Marquez, really. Just, it's been unreal. Uh, and also, I mean, I have to say, uh, the parallels between uh, MotoGP and World Superbikes this year, because John, the way that Jonathan Ray came back from, what is it, an 84, 87 point deficit uh, to, to win the championship, just remarkable, just incredible. So I think it's just it, it all round. It's been it's been a really it's been a really interesting season of motorcycle racing. Yeah, sixty odd point lead that Bautista had at one stage over Rager in the course of the season, and yeah, that was for me obviously the big talking point all the way through the season was how that sort of transpired. But for for you, Neil, what's your overriding thought of the season? Yeah, I think looking back on 2019 in MotoGP anyway, um, there's a little feeling that um, it was almost a, a slight changing of the guard. I know uh, Mark Marquez has been a, a sort of regular fixture in recent years as the, the number one rider, but um, we saw Lorenzo obviously have a disastrous season and then he announced his retirement. Rossi, you could maybe argue that he's entering the very twilight of his career, although we have been saying that for uh, many years now. Um, and then we saw the, the kind of rem- remarkable emergence of Fabio Quarter and um, quite possibly a few other of the uh, the rookies coming through and um, well it could be that we look back at 2019 as the, the start of um, a bit of a changing of the guard I think yeah I mean there's definitely a whole what we saw this year was a whole number of uh, podiums off the top of my head but at least four five six where Mark Marcus was the oldest rider on the uh, uh, on the podium and also um uh, in, in the, on the front row as well, so there there really is because you know Vinales is younger than uh, than Marquez and Rins is younger than Marquez uh, and uh, Vinales, uh, Quattararo, Rins all been really good. Juan Mir has been really good. It's been a good crop a crop of uh, crop of rookies really. Yeah, and that's been one of the things for me, Dave, that's been the most interesting thing is whenever you look at the young riders that have learned from Mark and you see Moto2 riders picking bikes up off their elbows and trying to just use the gas to try and save a crash and different things like that. And it looks like they've all learned how to save crashes like Mark has. And now suddenly some of those riders are coming through into MotoGP as well. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's just what happens. What happens is um, you get one really good rider who's uh, better than 
um, uh, better than the rest. He comes in as a young rider, changes the sport, and then a whole bunch of kids watch him and try to emulate him, uh, end up doing what he's doing, and and come in and try to beat him. We saw it, you know, we've seen it so many times before. We saw it with uh, we saw it with Valentino Rossi. You know, you, you saw it with uh, Lorenzo. Lorenzo pushed the sport on. Um, Stoner pushed the sport on, and every time. Uh, young riders who came in, they knew what they had to to, to to do to come in and beat them. So it's it's just um, uh, speaking as an old man. It's just what happens to you, you as you get older. There are young young people like yourself and Neil who come in and bloody ruin it for the old people like me. Just remember, Dave, you're only ever as young as the woman you feel. So that's the main thing for you. <laughs> well, my my and wife the- is two years older than me, so that's. Oh. Uh, <laughs> She, I tell you what, Dave. She looks an awful lot younger than you. Anyway, she does. She does look. She does look about twenty years younger than me. But then that's not really. Uh, that's it's not not very difficult to look uh, quite a lot younger than me. But um, let's say more uh, about you than her, Dave. <laughs> no, she's a. Uh, uh, d- oh, I'm delighted that uh, that she looks better than me. Well, to move swiftly on from insulting you, David, we'll start to insult Neil. Um, just uh, the first topic of the show, guys, we're going to talk about who our top five riders of the year are. So for the two years, if you look at MotoGP, I look at World Superbikes and that should give us a decent enough list. But Neil, when you look at the season as a whole, like who are your top five riders that we've seen across all the Grand Prix classes? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, number one is very, very obvious. I mean, we don't really need to say who it is. I think it's that obvious, but Marquez clearly uh, record points all this Alex year. Marquez was very impressive this year. <laughs> he was, right? And, you know, the fact that he managed to get a Repsol Honda C on the back of a Moto2 title, I mean, that is just ridiculous. No one saw that coming. So, yeah, Alex Marquez is our number one. And uh, <laughs> But, yeah, I think Mark would be number one. Um, and then I would say, um, I think Fabio Cordero just for... Uh, his sheer speed. Um, I don't think anyone made Marquez work as hard in races this year. Um, and um, his kind of uh, his refusal to sort of wilt in the face of some of Marquez's um, mind games and attempts to ruffle his feathers uh, later in the season, I think were, was really, really impressive. Um, so I put Quadraro up there. Um, I think Davizioso, for all his critics, uh, had a really strong season, scored the most number of points that he's ever done across uh, a MotoGP campaign. I'd have him inside the top five as well. Vinales, despite his uh, his flaws, um, many of which are still quite obvious, still glaring and um, quite frustrating to watch. But I think uh, in the second half of the year, he, he really made a step forward. And despite the fact that Rins faded away, in the uh, the final third of the year, I think uh, the fact that um, he was up there challenged for, for challenging for podiums pretty much for the the first um, twelve thirteen races or so, with uh, the occasional exception, um, I think merits uh, a place for him inside the top five. So I would say Marquez, Quadraro, Davizioso, Vinales, and Rins would be uh, my top five riders from yeah. this year. Congratulations, Neil! You've just guessed my top five. <laughs> um, but I I, th- I think the fact that that we both, um, the, we, the, you know, this is the way that we both see it. Is is just underlines that that really is more or less the way the the, the, the way that the, the season has played out. You can't argue that Mark Marquez um, hasn't been the best rider. He's been uh, just much better than everyone else this year so far. Uh, the fact that he finished that he, his worst result was second is. Just remarkable. This is as close, I think, to a perfect season as, uh, as you can get. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens next year. Um, as you said, Neil, Fabio Quartararo, 
basically from Jerez onwards. I mean, you know, he had a good uh, he had a good race at uh, Qatar. He qualified, or well, he had a good qualification at. Uh, 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 I qualified well. Um, race didn't quite play play out because he had to learn about racing. But by the time we got to Jerez, he was you know he was battling for the win. And if his quick shifter doesn't uh, uh, doesn't break, then he's looking at a, a certain podium. And at Jerez, someone from uh, you know someone close to Honda told me that um, that Mark is really. Really, very uh, quite worried about uh, about Quattro. He was the one rider that he was really, uh, really frightened of. So, I think we really saw Quattro's uh, potential in the second half, and also Quattro moved Yamaha on. He made the, the other Yamahas better because um, he showed what was possible just by trying to ride the bike. Um, that I think made a, a, a made a big difference. Dovicioso is Dovicioso. You know, finished second. He's clearly the second best rider in, um, or he was, he was clearly the second best rider over a season. Um, but I think I would put Quattararo ahead of Dovicioso because Dovicioso, well, because Quattararo is a rookie, you know, and he, he took a few races um, uh, to to adapt. Dovicioso was was obviously quite um, criti- critical, really, of. of uh, Ducati for not being able to fix the turning issue. Uh, we'll see what happens next year. Um, Vinales, as you said, fantastic. He, he's had a really strong season, especially the second half of the season. First half of the season, um, he had problems with his uh, with starting and with qualifying. Um, and you know, getting off the line and the and the, and the first few laps, they they seemed to fix that as they went along uh, during the season. Uh, uh, and I think Alex Rins, like Alex Rins and Vinales, are very similar in the way that they're both uh, they both had sort of obvious flaws. Alex Rins and the Suzuki, because you saw it with Juan Mir as well. Um, uh, they both had this flaw where when they're good, they're amazing. Um, but if they, you know, they 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 just couldn't qualify very well or they'd get a poor star or whatever. Uh, Alex Rins, uh, if I had to guess who had the most overtakes this year, I would say it would be Alex Rins because, uh, you know, Rins kept on qualifying sort of, you know, 10th, 8th, and then ending up up either on or close to the podium. So uh, it's remarkable, but it's a weakness. The point is, if you qualify on the front row, then you don't have to do all that overtaking. You might actually win some more races. Yeah, because that was one of the things we saw. If you look at Sapanya's your best example of it, really. Marquez, obviously fast all the way through the weekend, Neil, but has his crash in the qualifying session and then suddenly can't actually get through to the front to win that race. So once you lose that ground out at the start of, the, you know, in, from qualifying to the start of the race, it does really put you on the back foot. Yeah, it does. Um, and um, I, I think also it, it's, you would say those those guys are the top the top five, but apart from Marquez, I mean, maybe apart from Marquez and Quadraro, I don't think anyone really came out of this year staking a claim as like, yeah, they had a great season. There was a lot of guys that had, you know, a really good half season or a couple of very strong races or in Rins's case, maybe you could say, yeah, just a little longer than a really good half season. Um, and I think, you know, that's just the nature of MotoGP at the moment. Um, you kind of come in fits and spurts. Yamaha was uh, a pretty good package, I think, from the start of the year. But from the summer break, they really seemed to take a step forward and uh, maybe become the most complete package on the grid. Ducati started the year really well, but then seemed to fade a little bit and just seemed to pay the price a little bit for the advancements that Suzuki and Yamaha had made through the year um, or from the start of the year. Um, and... 
yeah, I think you look at uh, you look at a lot of guys that you would usually have up at the front. Um, Rossi, Lorenzo, um, even Crutchlow had a couple of good races, but I think generally was had a, had a bit of a disappointing year. Um, you know, it was um, it was a difficult year for for many people, and uh, I mean that is really. Um, summarized in the championship you have Marquez 151 points ahead of the second place rider which is just um, ridiculous and, and, and makes you believe that um, although there should be stronger challengers next year it's going to be a mighty mighty ask for anyone to step into his kind of realm in uh, the near future yeah because that was the big thing for me David obviously for coming just to four or five rounds through the year it really looked like there was big seesaws just every time I turned up, it seemed like something different or someone different was at the front other than Mark and Quattararo. Like when you look at Rins up until Silverstone, he had a great season. Then once we get to the flyaways, started to struggle. You look at uh, Davi, the same, some great races. Miller, the same, some podiums. And then some races where he's on the back foot, the same with Petrucci as well. Obviously, that mid-season section, whenever he hit his podiums and his win at Mugello and then goes off the boil. And it really was a strange year where a lot of the riders struggled just for that consistency that we saw. Obviously, Marquez, his consistency was ridiculous all the way through the season. And then Quattararo for probably half the year, really consistent as well. Yeah, I think that's also reflected a little bit in the way that the uh, in the way that the bikes have been because I mean the 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 Honda they had one big problem at the start of the year which was this this engine braking problem which stopped them from getting its corners properly. Um that was uh, that was an issue but so for Yamaha, Yamaha seemed to make a really big step towards the, in, in the second half of the, uh, uh, of the season. Also because basically they stopped messing around with the bike too much and just let Vinales get on and ride the bike. They stopped trying to fix the bike so much. So they sort of dug into the potential of the bike and unleashed it. And it, in, at the end of the year, it wasn't a bad bike. So that would explain why it, like they had a bad start to the year, but the, but a stronger uh, second half of the year. Uh, Ducati seems to have sort of the opposite where they had a, you know, really strong first half of the year, but um, they were not so fantastic at the end of the year. They, they just didn't make the same kind of, uh, kind of development. So, um, you know, Marquez had a bike that he could use. No one else could use it, but uh, that's the, what we've been used to. That's just what we've been used to. Uh, Marcus had a bike that he could use, and he, he used it to its full potential and went out and you know won some races, or well, won loads of races. And when he couldn't win, uh, win a race, he, he, he finished second. So I, I, I do think that um, Marcus's lead is not reflective of the real... Uh, balance of the season, if you see, if you like, I think that um, if others had been more consistent, it would have been, it wouldn't have been close. It would have been closer, but he's still just significantly better than anyone else at the uh, at the moment. Neil, do you think that uh, some of that inconsistency is also stretching to the other classes as well? Obviously, in Moto Two, we saw at the end of the season, Binder came on form. We saw Alex Marquez very strong at po- points during the season, and maybe that. Uh, that's what sort of kept some of those Moto Two riders out of your top five as well. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, I think there's a good, um, a good case to to make, um, which would put maybe either Alex Marquez or Brad Binder in uh, the top five um, this year. I think Binder in particular was uh, ridiculously impressive. Had it not been for um, a really pretty lousy uh, chassis. Um, in the first half of the year, um, I think he could have probably won the championship and uh, would have certainly been um, maybe a bit far for, further forward 
Um, but the, I think you know it was a year of transition in Moto Two, switching to the new Triumph uh, Seven Six Five engine. Um, a lot of teams were adapting to that. Then they also had to contend with um, a change in Dunlop's rear tire, which came in after the first three races. That put a lot of guys who seemed to have their setup all kind of sussed out in the uh, in testing and the opening three races. That kind of threw a couple of people off course. And uh, yeah, we saw just some real weird variations, some very strange results. Um, I mean, the guy that led the championship after the first four races ended up absolutely nowhere in the championship, Lorenzo Baldessari. Um, Marquez was pretty much nowhere after the first four races, but managed to come through and win the win the championship with the race to spare. So, um, yeah, I think um, that has something to do with the, the rules changing. Um, and, um, well, yeah, I think you might see results a bit more settled next year in Moto2. So, uh, so Steve, we've had we've talked about our top fives. What about your top five? Well, my top five would be quite different to your top five, I'd imagine, Dave. Uh, my my top five would be obviously Jonathan Ray and World Superbikes to win this championship. It's fifth in a row, but this was the one that he really had to dig deep. He didn't have an advantage really at any stage through the season in terms of the bike. He had that run at the start of the year where he had to just keep answering the call every time Bautista was winning races and try and finish second. So for me. Very easy to put Jonathan Ray as number one, the same as it is in MotoGP to put Marquez at number one. Uh, number two for me is actually a little bit more difficult because I've got Bautista in there in second spot, even though it's a season where it's hard not to look at it as if he didn't throw away the championship with all of his mistakes and crashes. But he still won an awful lot of races. He still finished on the podium an awful lot. So Bautista to come in as a rookie to, to Pirelli tires and things like that to do what he did was really impressive. Um, then third, fourth, fifth, I think you could go pretty much any direction for third, fourth, and fifth, whether you're going, for me, it was Lowe's, Top Rack, Razgadioglu, and then Van der Mark for third, fourth, fifth, but you could put them in pretty much any order. There wasn't too much to to separate the three of them all the way through the season. Top Rack, obviously, getting his first wins in the championship, being able to go toe-to-toe with Jonathan Ray through you know, a couple of rounds through the season, podiums from Imola all the way through to Argentina. That was very impressive. But Lowe's, for me, had the edge because he did end up finishing third in the championship and he had that consistency all the way through the season. Himself and his crew chief, Andrew Pish, said all the way through the winter that you're testing for a 13-round season. You're not testing for the first round of the year. So when they struggled a little bit in Phillip Island, they were able to keep a cool head. And other than what we saw at Jerez, the the weekend where Lowe's really came a bit unstuck, um, he was pretty much consistent all the way through the season. The opposite of that being a bit with Van der Mark, like what we've seen during the time where they've been teammates, Van der Mark having higher peaks, but uh, just deeper troughs as well. So he was a little bit more inconsistent than those through the season. So I'd have him at number five, but they'd be my top five. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it's also been interesting, I think, watching the way that Jonathan Ray has developed because he really seemed to grow as a rider as well. You know, really being pushed for the first time in years, really, um, uh, in World Superbikes, he really had to he really had to dig deep, and that was for me that was like one of the most interesting things to watch, and also seeing the difference that a win makes to a rider for Top Rack. Like Top Rack has been waiting for uh, he's been waiting for a win, and he he seemed to be last year seemed to be terribly inconsistent. The start of this year as well, a little bit inconsistent, but like he all of a sudden everything seemed to click into place. And, um, that, uh, and he made a huge step forward, sort of inconsistency as well. And that to me was, uh, I found that really, really interesting. 
Yeah, I think one of the big reasons for that was the change of bringing in Phil Maron as his crew chief. Obviously, Phil's had a lot of success with different riders in the past, whether you're looking at in the super sport class with the likes of Sam Lowe's and then on with Eugene Laverty on you know, a MotoGP bike and then a super bike as well. And to bring in his experience made a big difference to Top Rack where you were able to sort of look at things with a clean sheet of paper, whereas everyone else at Pachetti had probably grown with top rack whether it's from the stock 600 the stock 1000 onto a super bike and then suddenly you bring in a fresh pair of eyes and i think it seemed like phil was very keen for top rack to be his own man rather than to always think about what maybe keenan safogli would like or different things like that and just for top rack to have to stand on his own two feet seemed to make a little bit of a difference and that's where it'll be interesting to see what happens with top rack next year because switching from pachetti to the Yamaha squad's going to be a big change for him and suddenly there's going to be a lot of things that maybe he didn't do in the past with Pichetti that he's going to have to do now with Yamaha so he'll need to just make sure that everything's pretty much ironed out for him. So we'll move on guys from our top five riders of the year through to what was your favourite race of the year? What was the best race of the year for you? So Neil we went to you first for the top fives and uh, seeing as yourself and David matched up with that we're going to go to Dave first now for what was your best race of the year Dave? I think for me, it has to be Mugello. Uh, I mean, like Mugello is always a fantastic race anyway. Um, but it was just an absolutely superb battle. Um, really sort of close all the way through. Uh, two Ducatis versus a Honda. Um, it looks like Dovichosa had the race sort of under control, but you never knew. And then for Petrucci to finally get his first win, uh, on a Ducati in Mugello, it was just, it was, yeah, it was just outstanding. It was, and it, it was, it was really deserved for, um, uh, for Petrucci as well, because he'd been, he'd been making these sort of steps forward. And for it to finally happen at Mugello was, was something really, um, something really, really special. Uh, and it was just a fantastic race. And, you know, Magello's a fantastic place. And there was just really, not really, um, and we ate pizza, really good pizza almost every night. So, you know, there was just not a lot to complain about. Yeah, that's a pretty solid reason for any <laughs> top race, really. Neil, what was your favourite dinner of the season? I mean, sorry, what was your favourite race of the season? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, to deviate away from uh, from David's choice, I mean, Mugello, it is kind of hard to look past that. It was just a, a stunning three-way fight. Uh, two Ducatis taking on Marquez at Mugello. You know, it doesn't really get much better than that. But I think um, I would have to, to plump for uh, Phillip Island for the Australian Grand Prix because um, I think for the first third of the race you had, you know, a, a, something as exciting as anything I think we had seen across the season we had a, a nine rider fight we had two Aprilias in the leading group we had one Aprilia actually leading the race um, we had Valentino Rossi leading the race Cal Crutchlow was leading at one point um, it was a, a typical Phillip Island freight train uh, encounter and then in the end, we saw Vinales and Marquez kind of uh, clear off from the group. And um, Vinales, hands down, was the, the quickest guy throughout that weekend, um, through free practice, through qualifying. Um, he looked like the guy, just actually when you went out and watched him on track, he looked like the man at that moment, just so confident. Um, and that was the that was the place where surely he was uh, he was going to be able to win if there was anywhere in the second half of the calendar. But I think the way Mark has um, basically just uh, ghosted him, managed to cling on. I think his uh, his top speed advantage along the main straight managed to help him quite a bit uh, in the early laps. And then when Vinales's tires went off towards the end, um, he was just a sitting duck. And um, I mean. 
I would say Marquez dismantled him, but then you know you you have to remember that Vinales came back a week later and won at Sepang, which is really impressive. But it was just uh, it was just such a brilliant clinical bit of riding from Marquez uh, to win that race. And then you had the fact that um, you know Vinales went down um, trying. I think it was just an all or nothing attempt, which we really don't see from him very often. Um, and you know, see Carl Crutchlow getting the podium. A year on from his really serious ankle injury that so nearly ended his career and then there was just an absolutely fantastic fight for what was eventually third place you had I think up to six or seven riders uh, contesting that position and, and Jack Miller obviously got it in the end um, that was a very popular result um, and you had guys like Banyaya, Mir uh, coming through uh, and fighting inside the top six so yeah it was a race that had anything weird that sorry it was a race that had a little bit of everything um, I think for years we'd kind of been waiting for a Vinales Marquez head to head that would go all the way to the last lap and I think this was this was finally in it maybe just maybe it was a, a little glimpse into something we're going to see more of in the future yeah Philip Island was pretty cool because I was actually we we obviously had the Saturday race in Qatar to finish our season and I'm sitting in the airport getting ready to fly out to Malaysia and uh, just watching the Grand Prix starting from Australia and suddenly the flight's getting ready to board and then you're kind of there like, oh, I don't want to get away from the Wi-Fi. I want to still be able to see this race. And then suddenly it flashed up on the boards that flights have been delayed and you're thinking, deadly, I'll get to see the rest of the race. <laughs> and then once the checkered flag comes down, you're kind of thinking, oh, shit, flight's been delayed an hour. I'm just going to have to sit around <laughs> waiting for that now. But it was it was a great race and it was one of those times whenever you know, you're searching through your memory of like, when was the last time an Aprilia was in the you know, battle for the lead or leading a lap and things like that. And you're having to think back to, I think it was Jeremy McWilliams on the 500 twin and things like that. So that was pretty cool. That was a great race. Yeah. And I think if you just, um, you consider what happened at the end of the season um, from the Hareth test, we heard that, uh, well, Marcus has actually had another operation on a shoulder injury that he's, he was carrying. And from what he was telling you guys at the Hareth test, David, I mean, he's, that seems to have been injured in Thailand, yeah, um, that that was where he first injured it, and then he he, he kind of uh, banged it again uh, in Sepang, and then he banged it again at the rest test, forcing him to uh, undergo surgery. And you just consider what he was able to do, how intensely he was able to fight Vinales all the way until the final lap at Phillip Island, where his where he really shouldn't have been keeping up with uh, with the Emma around there. Um, I think in in hindsight, knowing that he actually was holding a pretty serious injury at that point. I mean, it just makes it all the more remarkable. Yeah, but I mean, if you think about what he did last year, uh, you know, 2018, when he had a, a basically a completely destroyed shoulder all uh, uh, sort of all season, uh, then it's it, it's not really surprising. The injury this time isn't quite as bad, but even then, as you say, um, it's quite, it is really, really remarkable to be to be able to do that. You know, bang yourself up really badly in uh, in Thailand, and then um, uh, and then still uh, win the championship and uh, end up in close fights. But it's been a good re- it's, it's been a good re- season for races anyway because we've had so many really close ones. Because I'm looking at the uh, I made a list of the margin of victory, and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, eight races which have been decided by less than a uh, less than a second, and there's a couple more which have been de- de- decided by by just a little bit more than a second. So it's been it's been really really close. And we've seen some fantastic battles with uh, Quattararo with um, Dovizioso. Uh, it's just been it's just been a really good year. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's been one of the things for me as well, Neil, just looking from the outside, whenever you look at some of the battles we've had on those last laps, whenever it's come down to whether it was Phillip Island or Thailand or Silverstone or a handful of other races through the year, that while Marquez has been able to win as many races as he has and finish on the podium all the way through the season, pretty much, but it hasn't always been that foregone conclusion that maybe if you were to look at the championship standings, that everyone would have just thought that races had been. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's maybe similar to 2014 in that respect. I mean, he dominated 2014, won the first 10 races. Um, but actually, when you look back through those races, um, weekend by weekend, I mean, the standard of racing was actually pretty good. Um, this is no kind of... Um, uh, you look back at uh, maybe Stoner's triumph in 2011 and, you know, the race then was pretty turgid, as, you know, you could say for pretty much all of the 800cc era. I think it, maybe the racing wasn't quite as um, packed together this year as it was in the past two years. Um, you know, the past two years, I think races like we had in Qatar, where it was basically, you know, eight riders contesting the lead until the final five laps, that wasn't quite such a common thing this year and I think you know Michelin's um, new generation of rear tyre had a lot to do with that um, but um, yeah I think uh, I think you still had some great battles some great duels um, there was a run of races from Austria through to Thailand I think I think it was five races that were that, that were decided on the last lap in that period um, so yeah, I mean, it was. I thought it was pretty exciting. And although you kind of knew that uh, Mark was probably going to outsmart everyone in the end, uh, there were you know a handful of occasions in which um, he came a little bit unstuck on the final lap. So uh, yeah, I think it was it was a pretty good year for racing all in all. And uh, to turn this back on to yourself, Stephen, um, I mean, there were many good races in uh, in World Superbike this year. Um, but what was the the best one for you? Well, for me, the best race of the year wasn't in Superbikes. It was the Suzuka 8 Hours. That's because that's probably one of the best races that I've ever gone to. And it was just went down to the very last second. Well, I'll chat about that in a second. But in World SBK, the best race of the season for me was Magni Corps Race 1. It was the 800 race for Superbikes. It was a real special occasion for everyone in the championship. And it's one of those races where you really want a proper milestone race to have a really good finish and a, and a great battle all the way through. And we had that. We had Vandermark went away at the front and he rode really well and suddenly ran out of front tyre grip, crashed at the end, and then suddenly you had top rack against Johnny for the race win. And, uh, you know, for you know the first top rack win, the first Turkish win on a superbike to come in the 800 race with a proper scrap against Johnny. It was, it was great. And that's exactly what you wanted. You wanted to have something that was something that will remember the 800 race for because that's what you always want with any of those big milestones but the race of the year for me was the eight hours because it, it's something that had absolutely everything we had a great battle between the kawasaki and the yamaha the honda was there as well we had basically one bike that was faster in the pits one bike that was able to get by with a different strategy and one bike that was faster on track so you had it where the kawasaki and the yamaha really closely matched there wasn't too much to choose between them you had it where haslam was quite sick so he was a little bit under power at the end of his stints and it basically meant that when ray got out on track he always seemed to have to do a little bit of catch-up the yamahas were having to defend from that and uh, it was great just to see some of the best superbike riders on the planet just having a proper eight hours balls to the wall just flat out all the way through kind of race 
And the best thing for, for me with the eight hours is always that it is a bit more of a level playing field because everyone's out there on different tires. You're using Bridgestones. The bikes are slightly different spec and uh, you can have MotoGP riders coming in to mix it up with the World Superbikes and BSB riders and then the normal endurance riders. And the fact that it went right down to the last minute and ended in such controversy as well with uh, Ray crashing at the end of the race and then remounting Diddy. You know, what was the red flag procedure? What was the procedure for when you had to get back to the pits? What was the story with uh, the regulations for that race? And it was just filled with controversy. We had hours later, we were waiting for a result to be declared, a winner to be declared. You're sitting in the press conference room with the, you know, the Kawasaki team haven't been awarded the win, but the riders not actually in the press conference because they'd already gone back to the hotel. And you had all of the team personnel came into the press conference room and they were waiting for their riders to turn up. And suddenly, when their guys showed up, all the Kawasaki people just stood up and gave them a standing ovation, cheered for them as they were walking into their seats. It showed absolutely no respect for anyone else in the room. You know, there was there was no humility whatsoever for the circumstances that they had won this race. It was just like, we've won this one and we don't care what anyone else thinks because it had been, I don't know, 25 years since since Kawasaki had won at Suzuka and it was just that that whole element to it that made it something special you had all the other riders were pissed off that they'd either been beaten or been taken off the podium you had Kawasaki just uh, putting on their face that no this is what we always thought was going to happen even though nobody at Suzuka thought that uh, the result was going to be overturned and it was it was something special and something that uh, for me made it really worthwhile to have actually gone all the way out to Japan for the race. Yeah, it's interesting. The The development of Suzuka has been interesting over the past few years where, you know, we've just had more and more, you know, top-level riders again. We're having better and better riders there. Uh, and it's making uh, it's making it really interesting. And as you say, I mean, this year's... Um, this year's edition was both very, very strange, but also um, just really exciting, really interesting. Yeah, and uh, that's the thing is that's always been really good about Suzuka is that you can get where a Jack Miller turns up to ride for Honda one year or Paulus Bagaro and Bradley Smith for Yamaha and a handful of other GP riders, whether it's Nakagami or anyone else. And uh, you'd hope that for next year, we'll end up with another good mix of, you know, a couple of GP riders coming across. Obviously, it's a bit trickier for GP next year, but uh, the Finnish Grand Prix is the week before Suzuka next year, and then there's a couple of weeks off afterwards. So maybe we'll be able to get it where, you know, Honda or Yamaha want to send out one of their one of their GP riders to Suzuka. And maybe that's where you've got the likes of Morbidelli doing Sepang this weekend, just as a little bit of a trial run for that as well. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be really interesting to see. That's going to be really interesting to see what they do do with that. Um, I mean, as you say, the calendar is not such that we could actually see uh, anyone who's in the running for the the championship with it. But um, there are plenty of others who, uh, you know, who who could be in there. Yeah, and uh, I think it could be something that uh, could give us one of those good memories long term as well. And Dave, when I, I talk about memories of this season... What for you has been the best moment of the year for you? Uh, the best moment of the year for me has definitely been um, uh, qualifying at Sepang. Um, uh, qualifying at Sepang, we saw uh, a vision of the future. We saw what was going to happen in the future. We saw 
uh, at its most raw, the the, the like the, the, this coming rivalry between Mark Marcus and Fabio Quartararo. Um, uh, we saw Quartararo not wanting to give Marquez a, a lift and or a, a tow, and Marquez hanging around waiting for a tow. And um, uh, and best of all, we saw Marquez afterwards categorically denying that um, he had uh, wanted a um, uh, that he was looking for a tow, and he definitely hadn't meant to be sitting behind uh, uh, behind Quartararo. Uh, and we saw. Well, we saw uh, Marcus's big crash. He paid the price for that sort of thing. But the the fact that the both of them were prepared to go that far to risk to take those sort of risks um, to try and outfox each other, I think that was uh, for me that was really the the, the highlight of the year. Watching that, um, uh, watching that develop. Yeah, for me, it was actually something fairly similar as well. It was whenever we saw in Magni Coors that uh, in the wet free practice sessions, Johnny Ray was just going out there, crashed, and then almost crashed again just to uh, try and assert himself. A bit like with what we saw with Marquez, and it was, again, another one of those similarities between the two that sort of shows everyone why you managed to keep being a serial winner as well. But, uh, Neil, what was your best moment of the year? Uh, well, we've I guess we've discussed our best moments of the year or our best races of the year, sorry. But uh, I think um, takeaway moment from the year would probably be uh, the race at Hareth because, um, I mean, we've mentioned uh, Cordero this season um, and his kind of, uh, I think Hareth was, was really his coming of age ride. Uh, we had seen um, flashes of it through preseason. Um, he possibly could have done something in Qatar had he not stalled his bike on the grid. He went on to set the fastest lap of the race in his very first MotoGP outing. Um, but Hareth, I mean, he, he got a sensational pole position on the Saturday. That was stunning enough. But then I think the way that he essentially um, threw his sort of teammate out of the way and pulled away from Morbidelli and Vinales and Rins and started chasing Marquez down for a couple of laps before his gear shifter broke. Um, I mean, I think that was the start of something genuinely special. And the fact that it was at Hareth, basically, which is always a great barometer for how a season's going to pan out. Like, you, you don't um, you don't challenge for the win at Hareth by fluke. It's not like some one-off. And I think quarter hour's performance that day... Um, I mean, I kind of hyped it up quite a bit at the time. A few other people were a little more dubious. I'm looking at you, Adam Wheeler. Um, but I think that was uh, that was the moment where I thought, oh, wow, this this kid really is producing something quite special. And it's not just um, it's not just like a hot run of form. This is something we could see more of through the year. Um, and yeah, I think if we're looking back, I don't want to build him up too much. Yes, he still hasn't won his first race, um, but he did so many special things through the year. And I think that... Uh, Grand Prix at Jerez really marked the start of it. And from there, consistently, I think he was pretty much challenging for the podium at least every weekend. Yeah, and I think for, for me, what impressed me most, because I was in pit lane uh, that weekend for, for Eurosport, when uh, Quattararo came in, um, he was absolutely... He was absolutely distraught, absolutely gutted. Um, and then less than an hour later, we were around the back doing his media debrief um, and he was in civvies and he was perfectly you know, happy, fine. Yeah, okay, these things happen. Let's move on. And that to me, that really, really impressed me because the way that he dealt with that, um, you know, 
he, he had his first podium in sight. He could see, uh, um, he could see it happening. He could see it, it, it unfolding uh, ahead of him. Uh, and to have it cruel, cruelly take away just by a simple, uh, you know, just by a bolt snapping, basically, that's that, that's all that happened. That to actually be able to cope with that and move on, that that to me was just really, really impressive. It showed uh, uh, an enormous sort of you know kind of mental strength. A lot of uh, a lot of riders would be they'd, they'd sit and, and mull about that for a very, very long time. But uh, but but you know, Quartararo didn't. That was that was impressive. Speaking to one or two members of uh, of the uh, the Patronus team, um, Quartararo has. I think his best friend and uh, assistant, uh, French guy Tom, who follows him to all of the races. And apparently one of the, th the th things that uh, Tom was shouting at Quadraro when he was crying his eyes out straight after that race was, uh, you know, calm down. You're going to have a thousand more opportunities to get on the podium. You know, chill out. You know, there, so there was an expectation inside his box that, yeah, this isn't a one-off fluke. There's that kind of self-belief that, yeah, I belong here. And that's quite remarkable when you consider um, he, at that point, had just become the youngest ever pole setter in the class and had only scored one Grand Prix win in his entire career. Yeah, exactly. I, I talked to Wilco Zielenberg about it, about it as well, and he said more or less the same thing. You know, we just said... Plenty more, you know, plenty more opportunities. This is just your fourth, uh, your, your fourth MotoGP race. Uh, these chances will come again. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, remarkable. And as you say, you know, he's only got one win, um, and he took a long time to to get that. He came in very strong in Moto Three, obviously, and then he sort of uh, disappeared. But to come back again, I think that shows uh, that there's something going on there. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by AGV Helmets and the new AGV K6. The best helmet for any use made from technologies developed in MotoGP. Finally, a comfortable, versatile, and safe road helmet for any motorbike and any rider thanks to the same advanced materials and innovative technology used to help world champions achieve the maximum in the most extreme conditions. Everything you need is now combined with everything you've ever wanted. The new AGV K6 Helmet. Okay, welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're looking back on the 2019 season. And uh, David, just when we look at the year as a whole, we're going to do our usual winners and losers. But who was your biggest winner through the 2019 season? I don't think there's any... I mean, I presume I'm going to say exactly the same that, uh, that Neil is going to say because there's just no real doubt about the big winner of 2019. And that's Mark Marquez. To actually pull off what he did is just genuinely impressive. To... to uh, Again, his worst result was second place. That, to me, is just absolutely astonishing. Um, he has won. Uh, sure, he may. I mean, you can say his crash at uh, Austin was uh, was his own mistake, but it was also a problem with the bike which they've been having. So uh, it was it was a known issue with the uh, with the bike. But honestly, what Mark Marquez did this year is truly exceptional. There are lots of other riders who've had, you know, really fantastic and, and really, really interesting seasons, um, which, you know, makes 2020 look uh, very, very interesting. But uh, for me, the just big winner this year is is obviously uh, is obviously Mark Marquez. And for Neil, what about you? Um, I'm also going to go for a Marquez, but I'm going to uh, opt for Alex in this uh, case because... 
this time a year ago, um, Alex had pretty troubled year, I think, in Moto2. That was his fourth season. Um, by that point, at the end of 2018, and um, while he showed that he was uh, very, very fast, on many occasions he was just throwing it on the road too often, wasn't quite keeping his head um, during races, and I don't think he won a race all year. Um, so for him to not only come back and uh, win the Moto2 World Championship, become a two-time world champion, but then to land really unexpectedly the Repsol Honda seat for 2020. I mean, <laughs> none of us could have even dreamed of that happening this time a year ago. So, um, yeah, and I think Alex Marquez, um, there's, there's been some criticism of the, the decision to appoint him the Repsol Honda, but I think... Um, Brad Binder aside, he was he was easily the most impressive Moto2 rider in uh, 2019. Um, he's clearly fast. You don't win two world championships in the, the junior categories um, by accident. Um, and there was maybe a three-month spell this year when he was genuinely untouchable in Moto2. Um, and he might have uh, faltered a little bit, had a few wobbles towards the end of the year. But um, on the whole, he didn't really make... He just made one mistake, and that was at Silverstone when he crashed out off the lead. Um, aside from that, he managed to keep his head throughout the season. And for a guy that seemed to be as mentally brittle as Alex Marquez in previous years, I think that is uh, that's quite an achievement. Um, and I think he was quietly impressive, actually, at the, the two postseason tests at Valencia and Jerez as well. Um, I think he might end up getting on a lot better than people expect him to do in 2020. Yeah, I'll go for the full house. I'll go Marquez as well, and I'll say it's Julio Marquez because now he doesn't have to cross his fingers for two classes. He can only do it for the one class, so that's quite good. Um, for me, the the biggest winner in World SBK, it's it's easy to look at Jonathan Ray, but the biggest winner, Kawasaki, just for being able to make sure that they were still able to get another title under their belts because this was a year where they didn't have the best bike, but they had the best team. And uh, they showed again just the importance of that human element within uh, racing, just that it's not always about the rider, it's not always about the bike, it's not always about the mechanics or the crew chiefs or the engineers, it's about everything. And it's where the package is what matters and it's not about whether or not you've got the fastest bike or the best crew or the best rider. You need to have a good balance between all three. Kawasaki had that this year. Ducati arguably had the best bike and whenever it was working for him, the fastest rider there in Alvaro Bautista, but it didn't work for 13 rounds a year. And uh, they saw the the benefit of the experience that you had, uh, that uh, Kawasaki has. And that's what made the difference. And then obviously for Kawasaki as well, to add the Suzuki eight hours to their season really did cap it off for them for KRT to go to their first ever endurance race. This wasn't like it had been in the past where the Japanese team brought in the Kawasaki riders, whether it was, you know, Jonathan Ray and Leon Haslam from Worlds and BSB in the past and then put them in alongside another Japanese rider. This was a case of Kawasaki brought their full world superbike team, all the crew chiefs, all the mechanics, everyone was there and even like press officers and the uh, team personnel were all present and it really was a Kawasaki world superbike effort taking on the endurance boys and to be able to go out and win it regardless of the circumstances. That meant uh, for me they were the biggest winners through the season. But on the flip side of that, the biggest loser for me is Ducati and Alvaro Bautista because they really did just have a season that they should have been able to dominate in more or less because they won all those races at the start of the year. I think it was 15 races through the season that Bautista won and they still didn't end up winning the championship even though they had such a commanding lead at one stage. So 
they're the big loser for me in terms of what we saw in Superbike racing. But for you, Neil, who's the biggest loser in the Grand Prix paddock? Um, I mean, I think you you could definitely make a case for uh, for Jorge Lorenzo. Um, but I think the fact that he, he left the sport with his held, head held high um, and that he is clearly enjoying his uh, his post-retirement months in uh, in Bali. Judging by his Instagram, I think that exempts him from <laughs> this uh, current uh, vote of uh, the biggest loser of the year. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Danilo Petrucci, actually, because, uh, I mean, it, there's a lot of contradictions in that he scored his first uh, MotoGP race win at Mugello this year. Uh, he had a really strong first half of the year. I think he was inside the top six at every race. Uh, that he was in maybe bar uh, maybe bar one uh, he finished sixth in the championship that was his highest place in in any MotoGP championship that he's had uh, going all the way back to 2012 and he scored 176 points that's uh, uh, that is uh, 32 more than his previous best total yet at the end of the year we have this uh, feeling that he's just that he's essentially on borrowed time and he did have a pretty rotten uh, second half of the year it has to be said it was not um it was not. It was not good form that Petrucci was showing, basically from the Red Bull ring onwards. And there were just times that we would be going to his debriefs. David, I can remember Aragon in particular, where he just he essentially seemed to shut down um, whenever he was talking to us. It was just he had been trying everything, uh, yet there was nothing really working. He wasn't able to get the rear tire to work. wasn't able to conserve the rear tire at all. Um, issues of you know him being a lot heavier than some of the other Ducati riders kept coming up, and then the whole rumor mill that went into overdrive at Valencia where his seat was essentially being called into question um, I mean the guy looked absolutely devastated and, and defeated um, at Valencia throughout the whole weekend um, just the the fact that his place was being discussed really seemed to to get to him um, and I think it's going to take a massive massive amount of self-belief uh, for Petrucci to come back from this and um, you know show the form that he did show in the first half of this year yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. It was a really, it was a really strange year for uh, uh, for Petrucci. Um, he really did struggle, and like you said, at Valencia, there was talk of him dropping back to the Aventia team. Um, the, going from sort of the factory team to the uh, to the Aventia team is uh, it really is uh, quite a significant fall, sort of thing. Um, I think I'm going to have to go with um, uh, Andrea Iannone because. On the Suzuki, you know, he was getting podiums and he was clearly, uh, you know, matching his, uh, at, at least as good as his teammate. Uh, and he loses his ride at Suzuki, uh, and has had to watch Alex Rins win two races. Uh, and it's just not been able to make the Aprilia work at all. Now, the Aprilia doesn't really work. Uh, but if you look at what Alicia Spargo has done on the bike, then he's been, uh, he's just been really, really impressive. He's just, uh, you know, he's been overriding the bike and getting far better results than uh, than he deserves to get. Um, he's finishing top ten. Uh, I mean, the bike and him are capable of top ten, and um, he's managing that really well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, f f there was much more possible. For uh, uh, for Andrea Iannone, and I don't think he got the potential out of the bike. But we saw Philip Island. He was fantastic at Philip Island. He was absolutely fantastic. Um, it, he showed he's still, I think, one of the most talented riders on the grid. Um, 
but he never seems to be able to get that talent out of himself consistently or out of the bike consistently. And it's hard to see, you know, Aprilia keeping There's a whole bunch of young, young, talented, eager kids coming up from uh, Moto2 at the end of next year. And it's hard to see uh, Ian Oni, anyone actually wanting Ian Oni because he's not, it's just not easy to work with. Yeah, the good thing for Iannone though, Dave, is at least he's still got his 2 million Instagram followers <laughs> for his pictures of him and his jocks. But uh, I think what what will be interesting for him is that, obviously enough, like a lot of these riders, he's out of contract next season and suddenly the Superbike teams are obviously going to be looking at someone like Iannone, a talented rider that has won Grand Prix, he's challenged for World Championships. Obviously, he's done well in the Premier class as well, with Ducati in particular. And suddenly you could get him in a cup price deal. Like he's still a proper talented rider, as good as anyone else. And if you get him in the right circumstances, he can still really get back to that kind of form. Yeah, and he's be it'd be absolutely fantastic for World Superbikes because he would, you know, he's a proper villain. He can be a proper villain. He's a proper someone to set up against um uh you know, Scott Redding versus Andrea Iannone. That's going to be absolutely fantastic to watch. Uh, preferably in the same team. Um but there will be you know, I, I, I as you say, I think he's uh, I think it would be um, there will be a lot of teams in World Superbikes who are going to be interested in him, and I think he will. Uh, I think it'd be good for Dorna to uh, uh, or, and for the series for World SBK to uh, have a, a really strong Italian rider in there and uh, uh, capable of, of winning and um, uh, and shaking the shaking the series up. Yeah, you can easily imagine a situation where there's four or five of the Grand Prix grid suddenly with the chance of moving over to World Superbikes and without being able to keep in the Grand Prix fields that they might suddenly look at it and say, you know what, this is a chance to go over, win a lot of races, do what Bautista did, make a lot of money and bonuses and uh, be able to contend for a World Championship again. Yeah, I mean, the, not even in just in terms of salary, but in terms of win bonuses from their sponsors, it's going to be uh, it's going to be fantastic for them. And uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, that, that's definitely going to be interesting to see what happens. Little bit of a change of pace now, Neil, as well for the end of the show. Obviously, this is a Christmas special, so we'll go into a little bit of a Christmas theme now as well. What was the best Christmas present that you ever received from Big Cyril and Big Suze? <laughs> uh, ever. Um, pfft, I mean, uh, I'm loath to, uh, to heap praise on uh, Apple, but um, I'd probably say an iPod pod that I received about 10 years ago has, uh, has really stood the test of time. It still uh, keeps me company uh, on those long-haul flights out to uh, Asia and uh, Australia uh, towards the end of the year. Um, yeah, I would have to say my, my current iPod, I think it's like a 12-year-old spec, um, but it's one of the first touchscreen ones. And um, yeah, is uh, it comes comes everywhere with me. So I don't think I could, uh, I could quite live without that. It's quite a boring answer, to be honest, but uh, yeah, I'm going to have to go with that. What about you, Dave? What's the best Christmas present you've ever received from? We'll go with Rosha for this one. We talked about your wife earlier on. But what's the best <laughs> Christmas present you ever got from Rosha? Well, um, considering I absolutely hate Christmas, uh, my wife is far too sensible to actually buy me anything for Christmas. So um, 
Uh, I was going to say the best Christmas present I ever had was when I was a when I was a kid was um, having an Action Man heli helicopter, which was just about as awesome as you could possibly imagine when you're about uh, I think uh, I don't know what ten or twenty <laughs> or nine. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. When you're thirty-seven, um, uh, but uh, yeah, no, that's that, that's it. I'm not. Uh, I'm very much the. Um, uh, I'm very much the Scrooge. The, uh, the, the turn of thought for Christmas. It just. I, I, what we do for Christmas is we uh, sort of, you know, tuck in, shut down, and um, uh, ignore the world for a few days. It's not a bad strategy for Christmas. That that's very similar to to most people's Christmas. In fairness, Dave. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, we we used to have uh, massive family Christmases, which were always um, uh, a lot less fun than they might sound. <laughs> I remember there was one uh, Christmas whenever I received a parcel in the post and I was so excited to open it up and it turns out that it was a motomatters.com Christmas calendar <laughs> and it was it was terrific it was filled with Scott Jones pictures and uh, I've always wondered why haven't I received a follow-up to that calendar Dave uh, probably because we stopped making it when uh, when when Scott went off to do something else so uh, yeah unfortunately that's not going to happen I'd settle for a best of Scott Jones calendar to to, to make its way through the post for me uh, Right, well, I shall I shall make that happen for you. I remember there was one there was one year at Christmas. I uh, I woke up. I was super excited, you know, I, I, as you always are on Christmas morning. I was probably about fifteen at the time, and uh, I went uh, went down to the kitchen, and I uh, was just getting a bit of toast and uh, and uh, getting ready for the day. And suddenly it was time for us all to give out our Christmas presents. And uh, there was this massive, big, just bin liner bag in the middle of the room, and I was thinking geez, that's a very badly wrapped Christmas present. It looks so badly wrapped that I thought, have I given a present to myself? And uh, <laughs> I remember mom came in and she said, what do you think of your guitar, Steve? And I was there like, I had absolutely no idea that I was getting a guitar. And looking at this bin liner shaped bag, I had absolutely no clue that I was getting my first ever guitar. And uh, suddenly all of the surprise was taken away from it. But I'll tell you what, Dave, I still have that guitar and I still play it all the time. So it stood the test of time over probably much as it must be 20 years since I got that one. Wow. Could I uh, make a, a correction, actually? I, I managed to get a drum kit uh, when I was, uh, I think, 14. And uh, although I, I no longer have it, pretty much um, was uh, a great tool for uh, managing those uh, those crazy teenage hormones that you have. Anytime that uh, you were you were struck by a bout of uh, I don't know overactive uh, hormones, it was great to just go to the uh, the garage and just um, bash on a couple of cymbals uh, for about thirty minutes, much to the uh, displeasure of my neighbours, I must say. But I was going to say, did 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 your mum really really hate the neighbours? Yes, she did. Yeah. <laughs> just out of interest <laughs> yeah and uh, pretty quickly they really hated us I'll tell you what Neil it might be bad whenever your neighbours get a, get a drum kit but uh, my cousins actually learned how to play the bagpipes so you can imagine how popular <laughs> they were around Christmas time whenever they gave that as a Christmas present so David I'll tell you what different, different topic about Christmas this has nothing to do with the fact that you've been a Scrooge this is more a question I asked this to Gordo earlier in the year I think it was in Argentina but let's say that Middle of Christmas Day, the doorbell rings and the police arrive and they're there to arrest you. What's the first thing that your family, what's the first thing that Roche is going to think of like, oh my God, what has David done to bring the police here? <laughs> uh, uh, probably common assault, probably assaulting someone for getting in my way while I'm trying to get on a train. A Christmas um, Santa, Dave, beating up a Christmas Santa, is that what you did? 
Uh, oh, give it give it a chance, but most of them, uh, you know, they've got all that padding, which is really it's really quite unfair. What about you, Neil? What's the chances of you assaulting a Santa in the middle of uh, middle of the shopping centre in Belfast this year? <laughs> uh, what What's the, the the first thing that my mum would think if I was arrested? Yeah, uh, I imagine it would probably be I don't know throwing up over a, a police car in uh, Bangor Town Centre on Christmas Eve. Um, yeah probably consuming uh, a bit too much booze it is the season for that um and uh yeah being a bit bit disorderly perhaps yeah a nice bit of christmas intoxication would fit in nicely with your usual profile neil <laughs> and for you for you i presume they would just be presume that uh, you know there was the sixth time in a week that you'd been doing uh, 130 in a uh, <laughs> uh down somewhere where where it's a where it's for where the speed limit is 50 I'll tell you what, Dave, I never speed in Ireland. I'm very careful with my own license. But if the French (laughs) authorities showed up at the door, they'd certainly know that it was for that (laughs) offence. Yeah, yeah. It was was your cousin in Australia, right? Yeah, I'll tell you what. Petey McCafferty, he's an an absolute rebel on the roads in Holland, Dave. But... uh, (laughs) If uh, David, you've already you've already talked about like what a Christmas is for you and for Rosha. It's obviously where you just get together and you just close the house off, and it's just for yourselves, just to be able to take it easy. But Neil, obviously for you, living in Barcelona, it must be nice to get back to Bangor and have a week at home. It certainly is. Yep, yeah. I haven't. Uh, you know, we we have to, I guess, travel a lot for our jobs. Um, it's just kind of the nature of the beast. So I haven't actually managed to get back to Northern Ireland uh, all of uh, this year. So it'll be the first time I get back um, pretty much in uh, in 12 months. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a fairly quiet time. Um, it's not quite as, uh, as drunken and disorderly as it was when I was uh, in my teens and uh, 20s. Not I'm a kind of mature uh, old man. But... Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty quiet time. Um, it's usually a time free of work as well, thankfully, which is great. And it's just a, a time really to to recharge the batteries. I usually come out the other side of Christmas and New Year thinking, yeah, okay, I'm ready to I'm ready to go back to work and uh, and and you know put a shift in because usually December you're just the last thing you want to do is think about motorcycle racing. The last couple of weeks I've just been like, get your head out of it and do something do something different you know spend your time on things that you've been wanting to do uh in the past couple of months you know when you've been away from home so much so um yeah it's a time to to rest recover see the family catch up with uh, some old faces um yeah usual usual christmas carry on yeah and uh, david just uh going on to what neil was saying there about maturing and getting a little bit older and the heavy drinking days being a thing of the past obviously enough um, everyone always thinks that they're a really classy wine drinker and it's a sophisticated drink but everyone gets incredibly rad arsed on wine over christmas as well don't they <laughs> is that the same whenever you're sitting alone at home and that's because they haven't been practicing all year that's what nah, it is that's it dave that's it it's about making the effort all the way through that's the right that's it's right it's about, about giving your it's giving your it's giving your 110 percent every on every weekend. That's what it is. It's it's about getting that Moto three rider etiquette in, David. You finish <laughs> one bottle, you're on to the next. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, seamless shift from one to the next. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. It's been a pleasure to have the two of you on the podcast all the way through the season. I've really enjoyed being able to listen to the Moto GP side of affairs all the way through the season. It's been really useful for me, obviously not being in the paddock as much this year, just to be still able to get all the news all the way through the season. So, David, for the last time in 2019, thanks for joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast. 
And uh, thank you also. I've also enjoyed uh, uh, listening to you and Gordo, and I've learned a lot about what's going on in the uh, in the World Superbike uh, paddock. Yeah, that's mostly from Gordo, to be honest. But uh, it's been a real pleasure to have Gordo all the way through the season as well. Obviously, from each of the World SBK rounds, we had uh, the dulcet tones of the big Scotsman all the way through. And uh, it really was great to have him on the show all the way through the season. Neil, it's been great having you on the show as well through the course of this year. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show in 2020 as well. Yep, thank you very much, Steve. Yep, and... uh just like the echo David sentiments great hearing you and Gordo giving your uh, views every weekend from the World Superbike Paddock it gives me a little uh, I mean you get to see the racing obviously on TV and uh, listen to your commentary but it definitely provided a bit more of uh, in-depth analysis of what was going on behind the scenes there so that was uh, um, yeah that was that was welcome I think a welcome addition to this show and um, yeah hopefully we'll be coming back uh, bigger better stronger than uh, ever in 2020 and I guess it's a good time to, to thank everyone listening um, for their continued support and um, yeah hope to uh, hope to have you again as a, an audience member uh, in the months to come yeah and a big thank you as well then to Tammy and Vanessa as well who joined us as guests through the season we also had the likes of Adam Wheeler and also French Tom Beaujard all the way through the season as well as a couple of guests so a big thanks to all of them but mostly a big thanks to all the listeners as well who've been able to join us all the way through the season and who've also supported us by uh, donating through and becoming patrons on the patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and also listening to us all the way through the season so a big thank you from myself Steve English from David Emmett from Neil Morrison and everyone else involved with the paddock pass podcast show all the way through the season so to everyone else a big thank you and and we look forward to talking to you all the way through 2020 as well. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by AGV Helmets and the new AGV K6. What you need and what you want in a motorcycle helmet.